Well, if you don't take anything else away from this morning, take that. Uh, uh, the beautiful Savior. Uh, he, he is the very definition of all that is beautiful. All that truly is beautiful, we know is beautiful because it first exists in Him. And uh, so we're so thankful for uh, the hymn writers, the poets, who evidently have some pretty good devotions on occasion. And uh, they pen down their thoughts. And uh, then skilled musicians put it to music. And so beautiful and so lovely. So memorable. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's take and open them to uh, Psalm chapter 6. And uh, I know I usually say this, but lo and behold, I have my handy-dandy bookmarker, Psalm chapter 6, from our wonderful... Uh, reach team, reminding me to, uh, to pray fervently, to make disciples, and I appreciate the update from this morning, and uh, I've, I've got a, a new little discipling interest in my life, I'm going to be a grandpa here soon, can you believe that? So... I, I know that there's a lot of grandparents out there, and you should get applause, too. But this is a shocker for me. <laughs> uh, not because we're having a grandchild, but because how did we get here? <laughs> uh, how did I get this old? And, uh, no, but I'm delighted my middle son, Nathan, and Alyssa are giving us our first grandbaby. So, uh, and I'll tell you, this, this, the whole emphasis on disciple-making has made such a profound uh, impact in my life in relationship to not only my own children, but uh, hopefully in my grandchildren as well. These are our little disciples, and I'm so looking forward to, to all that I hear about that experience. I hear it's just wonderful. So thank you, Nate and Alyssa. Looking forward to that. And uh, may there be many more and all that good stuff. <laughs> so what a joy. Um, Appreciate Matt reading for us Hebrews chapter 12, and I sort of wanted to set that uh, in the backdrop of your thinking um, as we come into Psalm chapter 6. And my goal, and I think David's goal, the Holy Spirit's goal in Psalm chapter 6, is to encourage us and to help us and, and to give us some clarity and insight. And so that's what we're going to pursue together uh, uh, this morning. So let's read Psalm 6. And then we'll see what the Lord has for us here. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in thine anger, nor chasten me in thy wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, because my soul, or rescue my soul, save me because of thy loving kindness. For there is no mention of thee in death and Sheol, who will give you thanks. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. 
my eye is wasted away with grief. The idea there is my eyes are swollen shut because I've been weeping for so long. It has become old because of all of my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They shall suddenly be ashamed. This morning, we're going to meditate on a difficult Christian endeavor. That endeavor is learning to respond in a manner that God intends us to respond while under the disciplinary hand of the Lord. This endeavor is the sole property of the people in this room who have been transformed by Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, this message is something that uh, is, you don't necessarily have to worry about. We obviously would encourage you to come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, to love and trust Him with uh, uh, your eternity. Uh, he has substituted for you. He has taken God's wrath for your sin. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no condemnation in your life at the very beginning of your spiritual life. You don't have to wait to the end. You can have it right now because of Jesus. So those of us who have done that, who have trusted Jesus, who recognize there is no condemnation, what are we left with? Or we're left with the joy of learning. And uh, that's really what Psalm 6 is all about. This endeavor is the sole property of the people in this room who have been transformed by Jesus into the often uncomfortable condition of being a learner, lover, and worshiper. An often uncomfortable state. It's not easy to learn, particularly when you're 51 years old and you've known the Lord for well over 40 years. It's not easy to learn. In Hebrews 12 language, as Matt so ably read for us this morning, this condition that the believer finds himself is the condition of those who pursue holiness in Jesus' strength. The learning process at times is filled, as we see from Psalm 6, with raw emotion. The raw emotion of embarrassment, shame, and even... Uh, Fear and anger. The learning process requires not just the difficult reality of swallowing our pride at times and admitting before the Lord and others that we were wrong. It also requires us to keep choking down that pride as sin's consequences unravel in our life. Yes, even the consequences of sins that have been confessed and forsaken. 
those too have consequences in our life. Hebrews reminds us that these are tender times. Hebrews 12 teaches us that they are eternally risky times. Will we endure by responding as God intends? Or will the root of bitterness spring up in our attitudes with its disastrous consequences? And my friends, those are the only two options given to us in Scripture. There is no third way. We are either progressing and working out our salvation with fear and trembling, trying, working at responding in the way that God intends us to respond, even in light of sin that's been confessed and forsaken but still has lingering consequences. We either are working hard at that or we're giving way to the root of bitterness in our life. There's no neutral ground. You can't just sort of stand still. There is no standing still spiritually. So, but take great comfort. Uh, the man after God's own heart, King David, is going through this exact same thing. So with high risk comes high reward, right? Have you ever heard of that? High risk, high reward. There's tremendous reward in this risky endeavor of not responding in bitterness, but pursuing holiness and doing, choking down pride, admitting when we're wrong, enduring the embarrassment, thanking in Christ that there is no condemnation, glorying in these things. With that high risk comes high reward. In Christ, the results of the peaceable fruits of righteousness that Matt read about in Hebrews 12. The result of the peaceable fruits of righteousness that growing holiness in our life produces can progressively be your and my joyful reality. So if Hebrews 12 gives the curriculum or how it works, Psalm 6 takes us right down into the schoolhouse to observe an actual lesson. I know none of us like school. Well, some of you may. I was not a great school lover myself. That's why I, my degree's in PE, physical education. You don't have to be in the schoolhouse. You're outside, and you're, you know, and you're playing games, and it's a great thing. So I was not a school lover. Um, maybe you are, and that's good. But Psalm 6, we're going to just look at a raw lesson in relationship. David talks to God as he experiences the intense pain and struggle of the consequences of his sin. Now, this is a sin uh, uh, that had been confessed and forsaken. To avoid now the root of bitterness and apprehend the eternally rich lesson and the peaceable fruits of righteousness, David gives us some practical help. David responds, first of all, by confessing God's eternally dependable character. The first thing you need to do when we are wrestling under the consequences of our own sin, even sin that we've confessed and forsaken, but they're still living in our life, if we're going to avoid the bitter root 
and learn what God has us for to learn, we need to discipline ourselves to confess the dependable character of God in all things, especially in this thing. So you say, Pastor, where do you get that from this psalm? Well, the first observation we make is that this psalm is a psalm of lament. At first glance, we may think that it's a psalm of penitence where, where David is pursuing and, and asking God for forgiveness. But that's not this psalm. There is no request for forgiveness. The assumption is that has already been done. What David now is doing is he's lamenting like you and I lament when the consequences of sin still remain in our life. And we're still having to work. And what I, can I say this? Everyone under the sound of my voice who knows Jesus Christ is laboring under the consequences of sins that have been confessed and forsaken. Mark it down. We all are. So don't think yourself sort of an odd duck. We all are. We all are. So there's comfort and solidarity. And no one less than David was. The man after God's own heart. So it's a psalm of lament. David had sinned. Now, our text does not give us the instance. But we know from David's life, there are several publicly recorded sins that we could choose from. Not the least of which is the sin of Bathsheba and the consequence of losing the son or the child, the baby that indiscriminate moment or the, the, the sword that never departs from David's house? Never? Never? David is always staring between the eyes in his whole reign the consequences of his sin. Never goes away. In this specific case, we, we at least understand that the consequences for David are particularly felt in his body. Uh, we see that, the, the references to the, his bones uh, are dismayed. This, this is a syntyche, this is sort of a, a part of the whole. Some commentators tell us he was suffering from some sickness, some consuming fever perhaps, or, or something that literally made him shake. Uh, we're not sure exactly why David attributed this condition in his life to sin, to the consequences of sin. All of those details are left out because none of those details are of any pertinent interest. The reality is this is something we all will endure. So let's not get caught up in the detail of what it is. Let's rather get caught up in the detail of why it is and what God, why God is allowing us to remain here. That's what David's trying to teach us. The Holy Spirit's trying to teach us. So what does David do? David uses a term for uh, the God of heaven. He cries out, oh Lord. And you'll notice the translation of Lord, if you have a good translation, is in all small capitals. That's indicating that David is crying out with a very special name for the Lord. This is Jehovah. This is the name that God gave not to the Gentiles. The name given to the Gentiles is Elohim. This is the name given to the people who God has made a special promise to. 
And that is Jehovah. Jehovah. And he employs it five times. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me. Verse 2, O oh Lord, I am pining away. The second half of verse 2, heal me, O oh Lord. Verse 3, O oh Lord, how long? Verse 4, return, O oh Lord. This name for God highlights the eternally dependable nature of God's very character. This was a special and significant name, not merely a title. It was a name God gave to Israel underneath the Mosaic Covenant and was especially made dear to David because David himself had a very special promise from Jehovah that his dynasty would forever reign on the throne in Israel. Jehovah had made him that very, very special promise. You know what, friend? Jesus has made you some very, very special promises. You are in Christ, his son and daughter. And regardless of what's going on in your life, his character in relationship to your sonship or your daughtership is eternally dependable forever and ever and ever. And you can cry out to God. The New Testament uses the verbiage, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy. We have, we have even a more special name than David himself. As we labor under the consequences of confessed and forgiven sin in our life. God is dependable. And as we think on the name of God, on his character as we confess this in prayer, we are insulating our hearts against the root, the incipient root of bitterness that spoils everything in our life. And instead, it leads us into the green pastures of the peaceable fruits of righteousness in our life. And I'll tell you what, that's what I want. <laughs> I would recommend it for you as well. So specifically, this name for God means the unchanging, eternal God. It has with it the component that he is self-referencing, self-existing. So he is a God not to ultimately be figured out. He's a God who is not ultimately to be questioned. He's a God who is fundamentally to be worshipped and adored. The one to whom we bow the knee. Can we question this God? We're going to see that. We certainly can. But it's in against the reality of his special nature and character. And that he is eternally, dependably so. We could essentially boil this name down to, I keep my promises. That's essentially what Jehovah means. I keep my promise. So David employs a special name, the promise-keeping character of God. And we'd further observe that God's eternally dependable character is designated by this very name Dave gave David courage and grounds for entreaty. 
Do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Heal me. Return. Rescue my soul. Save me. These are all in the imperative mood. It is the heartfelt cry of one who knows he is the subject. He entreats his ruler based on the ruler's character. These are imperatives of entreaty. And understand this morning, dearly beloved, that there can be no entreaty made when the character of the ruler is unpredictable, impulsive, and unreliable. You can't entreat that. There's no ground in that. I don't know what your political persuasion is, but it's like the Democrats trying to entreat Donald Trump. It ain't going to happen. There, there's nothing there that they can call out for to, to set their stake in the ground in hopes of. It's just not there. But our God is completely different. He's not like the rulers of this age. He is a God who has revealed himself who can be entreated based on his character, who hears, and as we see in this psalm, answers. So be encouraged, dear friends. Be encouraged. You too can entreat God because you too have the same God as David. God wants you as he did David to combat bitterness by a confession of truth, of the truth of God's eternally dependable character, regardless of where you are. Even when you're suffering because of your own making, if we can put it that way. May the Lord deliver you from striking out in bitterness against the message or the messengers of the consequences of sin. May instead the message and those messengers train you, as it did David, to find the courage to get to know your God and to entreat him based on what you know is true about who he is. Sue God for his grace. Be the lawyer that comes with the objective truth of the word of God, of who God has revealed himself to be, and throw that back up into the very presence of God himself. God loves it when you do that. I don't know why, but he likes that. He's honored by that. It requires that you and I get to know God requires that you and I can no longer have sort of a Sunday school and nothing wrong with the Sunday school understanding of who God is. That's helpful. That's a great foundation. But it requires for you to become a man after God's own heart, to become a woman after God's own heart. It requires you to know God. And come full circle. Do you think maybe that's why God allows you to labor under the consequences of confessed and forsaken sin. This is a wonderful mechanism to force you to get to know your God. And if you truly know Jesus, you will. Not only does David confess God's eternally dependable character to combat bitterness, but he also prays without pretension. Prays without pretension. I picked this up in verses 6 and 7. You know, pretension is a word that we use a lot, and, and we may not quite understand what it, what it means. Or we know we don't like it. 
We don't want to be pretentious. Um, so let me give you a definition of pretension, a working definition for our cause this morning. Pretension is attempting to impress. Now, that's not bad. Should we want to impress God? We, we, we should, and we are able to, because Jesus is in our life now, and we have the ability not to sin. And when we don't sin and we embrace things that are holy, God is glorified. So we could call that, that impresses God in, in that sense. He's glorified. So pretension, though, is attempting to impress or to demonstrate a greater importance or talent that you might have, but it's not actually really possessed by you. It's pretentious. It's working hard at being one thing in public, knowing all the while you're just not that way in private. Okay. Now, obviously, pretension is, is something that God is going to have to continually squeeze out of our life, like milk out of a cow. Because <laughs> pretension is one of the probably fundamental definitions of our old sin nature. It, it is pretentious, if nothing else. It is certainly that. Pretension is the product of religion. Of religion. If you are involved in religion, you have no other hope but being pretentious. It's just how it is. You, you know, religion is based on your own work and trying to figure it out on your own. And you know, and that's a difficult way to live. David was not a religious man. David participated and certainly structured, meet the structured means of how to approach God. Uh, but he did so with a heart and an absence of pretension. And he demonstrates that here in this psalm. David was a man, not religious, but he was a man who had a relationship with Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. A relationship. You know, to maintain any kind of pretension in the presence of Jehovah is the height of irrationality. The Bible says that we are naked and open before him with whom we have to do. I don't know, that whole metaphor there is, hey, you're exposed, and it's okay. All right? God's got this. God knows all because he sees all. In the words of the psalmist, you're sighing, sobbing, and advantages that you surrender to those who hold the consequences of your sin over you are all well known to God. He knows them all. He knows them all. This fact for David did not inhibit, it, inhibit his communication. Some of you wrestle under the the notion that, well, if God knows everything, why would I pray to him anyway? I don't have anything to tell him. Well, you, have complete, you are somebody who is exercising the verbiage of religion in that statement. You are right 
if you are a religious person. There is nothing you can tell God. But if you're a person who is related to God, a warm personal relationship through, through Jesus Christ, just like a warm personal relationship with a best friend who knows you like no other, that does not inhibit your communication. That liberates it. You don't go with your best friend and say, ah, oh, I'm not going to say anything because you know everything there is to know. So it's quiet. No, man, you, you just, it, it liberates communication. The both of you chatter, 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 chatter. And it never ends. And you're really not learning necessarily anything new. You're just enjoying the relationship together and the dependence that you have in communication. David writes here, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. My eyes has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. There is no pretension here. And we've already read uh, the, the pretension absent verses of verses 1 through 5. This is pretty open communication with God. You know, pretension is one of, if not the greatest enemy of relationship of, and therefore of effectual prayer. God's eternally dependable character coupled with his knowledge of absolutely every reality in your life requires dropping pretension and praying fervently and honestly before God. You know, we live in a day that values rants and reviews. It champions the dropping of pretension and the love of what is authentic in expression. Well, let us be instructed this morning that the context of this rant is the shame and embarrassment of the reality of ongoing consequences of, yes, confessed and forsaken sin in a life. This is an appropriate rant. Be comforted, though, beloved. Know that God does not expect you to post or share this rant. Aren't you thankful? Uh, God required that of David. The Holy Spirit insisted uh, that David expose himself. Unlike any other Christian before, Paul sort of replicates it a little bit when he talks about uh, the realities of his ministry and bearing up under the weight of the church. He, he, but this is, David is even more personal. That's why we love the Psalms. It's so personal. But God hasn't called you to do that. The purview of, of this authentic confession, of your authentic confession, is the God of heaven. He is the only one who can handle it. His character is eternally dependable. There is nothing quite like living under the consequences of our sin that squeezes pretension out of our life. Nothing quite like it. Not only does the psalmist combat bitterness over long, drawn-out consequences of confessed sin by confessing God's dependable character, praying without pretension, and seeking to live without pretension, but finally, the psalmist pursues a new pattern, a new pattern. Verses 8, 9, and 10. The previous pattern we find in verse number 3. And my soul is greatly 
dismayed. That's the previous pattern. The new pattern in verse number 10, my enemies shall be greatly dismayed. What a wonderful turn. Now commentators tell us that David's particular physical ailment probably was alleviated. His prayer was answered, but, but that doesn't seem to be David's ultimate concern. The ultimate concern was uh, his enemies, who had sort of mockingly now uh, began to not only call into question David's life, but as a result, the God whom David served. And it was this that caused David great concern. That the name of God wasn't being honored or vindicated in the life of his enemies and therefore God's enemy. And this was his concern. And it is true that his consequences wave over us throughout our life. Yes, we're having to choke down pride. But the new pattern is no longer a concern that, doggone it, I'm not that bad of a person. Doggone it. I've lived now for 10 years. They should know better. I'm not like that anymore. Doggone it. Why don't they trust me? Doggone it. Why me, me, I, 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 me, 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 I. David isn't interested in that, folks. The vindication of me and I, if you have been faithful, will be the business of the king when he returns. It's not going to happen in this dispensation or this time. The church, get over yourself. Understand that what's critical is the opinion of the God of heaven in your life. The opinion of the God of heaven, of those who surround you and interact with you. Are you embittered? Are you constantly bringing up the fact that, man, that happened 15 years ago, why can't they get over that? Or are you concerned that, hey, you know, God's called me to be a learner, lover, and worshiper. I'm still learning. And it's hard. It's a tough, tough reality. But hey, God's dependable. I've learned that pretension in my life is just... Usually it's pretension that got us into trouble in the first place. But I've learned that it just has no value. And I kind of want to be done with that. I want to pray to God. It's opened up a whole new window of my relationship and dependence on Him. And I'm now committed to a new pattern in my life. I'm concerned about God's name and, and, and how he is viewed. And I'm concerned that those who stand up as enemies against God don't find fodder in my life to continue their ungodly rant against Jesus and God. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the pretentious hypocrite that is shot through with holes by those who are closest to me who don't know Jesus. I want to be wise concerning those who are outside. That's what I want. So what is this new pattern? Well, it has a new litmus test. So, so what happens now in the life of somebody who, who is living under the consequences of, yes, confessed and forsaken sin, but they're still there? Well, he has a new litmus test. What, what does it say there? It says... Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. So you know what the new litmus test is for this individual? The foundational litmus test is the question of iniquity. 
I am so done with iniquity in my life. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to be around it. And frankly, if that's all you're about, I'd really rather not be with you. I am scared stiff of iniquity. I don't want it anymore. So please, let's not do that, or let's not go there, or let's not be that. So iniquity becomes the fundamental litmus test in the life of a man or a woman who is responding as God intends him or her to respond in relationship to this idea of living under the consequences of sin. Hopefully you're learning the lesson that iniquity is not a good idea. <laughs> and really, that's what ruins life. That was eviscerates the peaceable fruits of righteousness, as the author of Hebrews wants us to enjoy, and is the outcome and function of being disciplined by the Lord, our Heavenly Father. So a new a litmus test, and there's a new logic. And, then, and the logic here is, is um, at the end of verse 8, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer, which now, verse 10, seems to uh, sort, of, uh, 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 or sort of orbit around this idea of defending the name of God in my life. He's answering and he's hearing that prayer. He's making me more like Jesus Christ. You know what? I don't have to swallow my pride as much as I used to have to. But oh, I remember what that was like and I don't want to go back there again. Okay? So there's a new logic. For he has heard. Living in a way that disallows God from answering prayer was just not an acceptable experience in David's life. So he wanted iniquity away. He, he remembered James 5, 16, or could have authored it. The, effect, the effectual fervent prayer of what kind of a man avails much? A righteous man. This, isn't a, this is a man who's learning these habits and patterns of life. Who's enjoying the peaceable fruits of righteousness in his life. And then thirdly, there's a new longing in this pattern. There's a new litmus test, logic, and a longing. And we've already spoken to that. God's name be vindicated. So in suffering under the ongoing consequences of confessed sin, God's intention is not for you to give way to dismay and defeat and embitterment. Instead, he wants you to respond as David did to pursue a new pattern, to allow the strain, shame, and embarrassment to be faithful friends that forever remind you of the dangers of iniquity. What do friends do? They're like iron sharpening iron. Yeah, you know, it's, it's rare to have a, a, an individual who does that. But if you can't find an individual, God has already placed into your life lots of faithful friends that are helping you and teaching you. And it's good and it's normal and it's, it's just how we all are doing. It's just, just take comfort and solidarity. We're all here together at some level. You know, in conclusion here, Thomas Brooks, uh, you know, the Puritans had a way of saying things that is just wonderful. Um, 
So Thomas Brooks was a guy who lived in the 1600s. He was a, a Puritan pastor, and, um, and he well said this, it is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christians among us. We've meditated this morning. Has God allowed you to light upon the flower of the ongoing consequences of... of, Oh, my notes, I'm getting updates. Has God allowed you to light upon the flower of the ongoing consequences of confessed sin in your life? May God give you renewed purpose and understanding this morning. May you be encouraged. Know afresh that it is not the message or the messengers of those consequences that are your greatest threat. You know, often we turn our anger and our ah at the people or the circumstances that we kind of live under as a result of sin, that that we've kind of sort of stirred up ourselves. That's not the greatest threat. The greatest threat is embitterment. Confess embitterment as the sin that it is. Jesus' intention is for your growth. Remember, there's no condemnation. There's no need for embitterment anymore. We get embittered when we're condemned. Okay? When when absolute assurance is the property of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus alone, when there is no condemnation at the very beginning of spiritual life, all that rest of the stuff that exists is for our learning. It's for our learning. So we want to be good learners, lovers and worshipers. Growth, Jesus' intention here of growth, confessing his eternally dependable character as a God who keeps his promises. And fundamentally, the promise is, Lord, I may dwell underneath these consequences, but Jesus, I thank you that you have promised when you come back again, this will all be gone away with. And you're eternally dependable. And I'm looking forward to that day. But until then, help me to learn. Help me to not be pretentious. Help me to to confess your dependable character. Help me to pursue a new pattern of life in a way that's pleasing to you. Um, Confess those eternally dependable character. May your prayer life do away with pretension and even your life itself with the inauthentic expressions of religion. And may you learn to communicate to him in heartfelt realities. May the presence or absence of iniquity become a cornerstone of evaluation of the influences in your life going forward. So this morning, dearly beloved, be encouraged. Remember what Hebrews said? You endure for discipline. Or we could put it this way. You endure because of the disciplinary hand of God in your life. And if you're willing to be trained by it, 
if you're willing to see it and understand it and do with it as God commands you to deal with it, you will enjoy not happiness all the time, eh, you know, no. You will progressively enjoy the peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life. May God help us all to enjoy that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for Psalm 6. We thank you for the Holy Spirit communicating through David. Uh, or like him, we, we uh, confess that we live under the consequences of our sin. Maybe it's been bad financial decisions. We got covetous. We got our wander got out of whack. Perhaps um, uh, we, we were indiscriminate we had indiscretion in terms of the opposite sex or, or all kinds of crazy things. Uh, the internet got out of hand, and Lord, we've confessed and forsaken those things, but you know that those consequences linger. You can't turn back the clock. Um, just like Esau, he was used as an example in Hebrews 12. He sold his birthright. That was a done deal. Um, and even though he sought it with tears, uh, he wasn't going to get the birthright back. So Lord, help us not to think that we're going to get whatever it is we want back, back, it's just not going to happen. Uh, instead, Lord, help us to recognize that these, this reality now, uh, you can use it, and you are, Lord. We love you. Help us, uh, instruct us, in Jesus' name, amen.